Today's readings uh, are from Exodus 7, verses 14 through 18, and Exodus 10, verses 21 through 29. They can be found on pages 58 and 62 of the Bibles nearby your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to, the, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock must go with us too. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God, and until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me as we begin. Our God of grace, as we come into this place uh, seeking something from you, some kind of connection to you, some sense of what you mean for our lives, we do so from all kinds of different places. So whether we come from a desperate struggle, whether we come from a lot of chaos and confusion, uh, maybe with intellectual doubts about what this all means, the Bible, Christianity, whether we come from a place of grief or we come from a place of joy, whether from doubt or from strong belief because we've seen you at work in our lives recently like never before. Whatever place we come from, I ask that you meet us now Meet us in such a way that we understand that despite our commonality in being broken people, more of a mess than we care to admit, that you respond to our mess and our failures and our fragmentation by moving towards us with your grace, deciding to love us sometimes when we're running away from you. Thank you for this grace and teach us through it today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So you've probably figured it out by now. I am actually preaching 
on the biblical plagues on Mother's Day. <laughs> and in my own defense, um, when I moved to Sacramento, I worked at a little church called Living Stones on Florin Road. And um, there was this chatter, there was already this murmuring about, uh, about the, the year before and how the minister had preached on uh, Sodom and Gomorrah on Mother's Day. <laughs> so I'm only doing what I've been taught. I'm, I mean, people would not let him live that down, that he preached on that on Mother's Day. But yes, I am dealing with the biblical plagues. And of course, the question is, how on earth do we carve out a way to understand this? How do we figure out what we can get from this? It's a big section of the Bible. We kind of condensed it and just read parts of it. We didn't read all of the, the first nine plagues. How do we make sense of it? How do we get underneath it? I feel like, uh, you know, just kind of like, okay, how do we make this current? Do we look at how in Sacramento recently, if you have allergies, it's felt like a plague of pollen in falling out of the sky. I don't know. If, if you don't have allergies, you're so lucky because um, the other day, Lisa and I were walking through Curtis Park neighborhood, and you could see the sun shining through, and you could see the dust just falling out of the sky on you from these giant trees. Um, plague of pollen. I don't know. I mean, you get it caught in your throat sometimes, and you just can't cough enough to get it out. Um, I also was at a wedding this weekend, and two people from different parts of the country were talking about weather going on in other places. So there's been some plague-like weather in, um, in Iowa, and um, the other place was uh, Phoenix, Arizona. So I, a couple of little headline kind of things from that. So in Phoenix, there was a dust storm on Wednesday and a th thunderstorm at the same time. Um, so this article is saying that there was nickel-sized hail, there was 60-mile-per-hour winds. There was lightning strikes and tree fires. Um, then also there was a dust storm that kicked up, uh, that was kicked up by a clash of northbound winds from the southern part of the state and slammed into eastern winds. And um, as if that weren't enough, the National Weather Service reported that what it calls, I haven't heard of this before, new word for me, gust nados. Gust nados, I don't know, but it's described this way. Um, these are... Spinning winds resembling a large dust devil. I don't know. So anyway, that was ripping off pieces of homes and, and dropping them across the city. So that's, that's Arizona. Is that what we're, you know, is that how we get underneath what these plagues are? Um, in Iowa, people, farmers dealt with up to five inches of rain in one night after a lot of them had just planted their corn. So it involves ripping it all up and replanting. Um, some places got 10 inches of of rain in one week. And, um, and this is interesting from an article. It's really very localized, says Bill North Northey, the state's agriculture secretary. You can have two farmers 10 miles apart from each other. One gets six inches sitting in their field, and one gets a half inch. A half inch is excellent. Six inches is a disaster, and we're seeing both. And I just thought, well, that kind of connects with, if you know these plagues in the Bible, there's there's Israel kind of in the midst of Egypt, and the people of Israel are all saved, and the plagues don't, you know, deal with them. So is this how we understand it, by the weather in Arizona and Iowa? Well, I know that one thing for sure that we bring to this text is that people come saying, and I can just hear it, you know, these are the kind of stories, this is exactly why I'm hesitant about church and about organized religion, because here, here we go again. There's a God up in the clouds, and as soon as he doesn't get his way, he comes down and smites the bad guys, and everything in his way just gets pummeled, and he doesn't care about the carnage on the side of the path he needs to take. And that's a serious, um, 
That's a serious feeling that a lot of people have about the Christian God. Um, but I think, um, let's just be honest that that may not be, that may be in, putting into this story prematurely a sort of uh, interpretation of what's going on. So I would suggest if you come with a little bit of that, just put it on hold and let's just suggest that maybe the best starting point isn't assuming that this is just a God willy-nilly doing some kind of wrathful thing on people who don't deserve it. Let's just, just back away from that and try a different starting point. Which actually, if we do, I think we hear... I think actually in this story, you, hear an ama- you get an amazing picture of the grace of God. Seriously, I did just say that. Through the stories of the biblical plagues, you get a picture of God's grace. But we do have to start with what plagues were for the ancient people. So for the ancient cultures that this was written in, the plagues were, it's very clear what they meant, what, what plagues like this meant for ancient people. They were weapons of the gods in battle. This is what all the literature points to in the ancient world. This is how plagues were interpreted. They're, they're like weapons of the gods in battle. So if you think about that, and you think of that, now this is the Bible talking to us. It's something, telling us something about God and his plan for salvation. So what we have to come away with saying is that God is revealing something about himself in a way that is true to the culture within which he's revealing it. And it's not our culture. To us, if God was writing the story of salvation today, and you even look at the New Testament, it doesn't doesn't deal with plagues in this kind of way. And it wouldn't come to us in this kind of way, but this was the culture. This is how plagues were understood. And God is going to use this understanding, this really this theological understanding that the culture had to say something about himself and his plan for salvation. So you have to understand kind of within that worldview of plagues being weapons of battle. So then you start asking good questions like, who's the battle between? It's God on the one hand and who's on the other side? And then the obvious question the obvious answer from the text over and over, you see that it's laid out this way. It's a battle between Pharaoh and God. And, um, and if you're feeling still a little bit sympathetic towards Pharaoh, and you say, you know, what all this bad stuff happened? How bad could he be? This was the king that, um, you know, basically what we know about him and his ruling was his order of infanticide, you know, throwing the newborn baby boys into the river. So that, this, is, this is the king that we're dealing with. So this isn't someone going around starting the Bill and, Mala- Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation you know, in the ancient world. This isn't someone going to impoverished villages looking to start academies of, of talented young girls to change their impoverished... You know, this is, let's kill infant babies so I can get my way. That's who we're dealing with. And he actually now has set himself up against God. Um, now, so you know that that's... That's what's true about Pharaoh. That's who this guy is. That's the kind of ruler he is. Then something kind of comes to the surface in the story. God is incredibly gracious. Before any of the plagues begin, Moses comes before him several times with a request. It's given multiple, multiple choices before it even happens. Then with each plague, it's like a ritual of Moses coming before and saying, okay, how about now? And then the answer is no. Well, this other thing is going to happen. How about, are you sure? And Pharaoh keeps saying no. So it just, that doesn't answer all your questions, but that gives you a sense of a, maybe a truer picture of the story. And so we're sort of covering the first nine plagues, and what you see in them 
is that they're strikingly natural in their variety and in, in what, they're, what they're all about, especially the first eight. They're very natural. You got the plague of blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail, locusts. Um, You'd almost expect if God was going to be really flashy, he could have Moses come in there and turn Pharaoh into a toad. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you pick something like that? I mean, anything, just, just something extreme and, and just so clear to everyone. But no, these are actually things, um, historical commentaries talk about how these were actually happening in an order that was very seasonal. There was a familiarity to these amidst the Egyptians, but they were happening at a heightened, intense degree all compressed together. So they were, they were kind of a part of nature. And this gets us into um, the real, what I would call the theological underpinnings of this message. If you're going to understand what's happening here with God, you have to understand the big point that we see in the plagues that kind of undergirds the whole story is that the, the human realm, the human world, and the natural realm, the natural world, function as an interconnected web. The human world and the natural world function as an interconnected web and so that human actions in the human world actually ricochet throughout the natural world. That's one of the things that comes out in these plagues. We don't like to think of it this way because these are terrible things happening. Um, It doesn't seem like it's anybody's fault in a sense. Um, the human action doesn't seem closely linked, um, but in this passage, it is intentionally linked. And the truth is, these are plagues that give us an increasing level, really, of chaos, and then darkness, and then death. And again, we don't like to say that there's some interconnectedness between those realities that we experience in this world and our own actions over here. But that's exactly the point. Pharaoh, let me get more to the point. Pharaoh is setting himself up against God. He's putting himself as the gatekeeper and saying, I don't have to listen to you. Your plan's not going to happen because I stand in the way. So he sets himself up against God and that action ricochets throughout the natural world around him. It's a pretty... Amazing concept to think about. And that's exactly how the Bible actually works. And it asks you to enter into that story as well and to consider it as maybe a part of your drama. I mean, this goes back to Genesis chapter 3. What happens when Adam and Eve set themselves up against God and start to wonder, is God holding something out on us? Is following these, these silly little you know, principles or rules of God, is that really freedom? Isn't that just kind of boxing me in and limiting my options? And then what happens, Genesis 3 is, is, is powerful on this exact same point that Exodus is helping us see. Immediately after they do that, what happens? But death enters the world. Pain enters the world. Um, they begin to have shame and fear, and not long after, murder enters the human story. The Bible invites us to enter into this picture of a created goodness that's all around us, that is unraveling. Um, I wonder if you can relate to that, just that concept. The created goodness around you unraveling. I think, you know, we can because we read the newspaper, right? Um, 
the newspaper, you open it up, and again today I was struck with the relevance of this. Sometimes you just want to close it and say, I'm going to go outside where the sun is shining because look at what's happening in this world. I had a friend who um, said that he, I mentioned listening to the BBC World Service um, through, um, I got this car and it came with Sirius Radio, and I was like, there's all these channels. You can listen to you know, these international channels, international news. And he said, yeah, the thing about that, it's just depressing. I said, I don't listen to that anymore. And it's true. It's just the news. It's just what's happening. You get this feeling maybe when you read the paper, when you think about our world, that there's a created goodness unraveling. I think the surprise is not that that's happening because it's been happening all along, ever since you were born, ever since you were able to read the paper. The surprise isn't that it seems to be unraveling. The surprise is that we care about it, that we seem to have something inside of us that says, no, that's not right. I mean, where does that come from? That sense that we don't want the world to work like this. Or maybe just, you know, we go through times in life where and maybe some of you are there right now where you look at your own personal life and it looks like the created goodness around you is just unraveling and it feels dark. One of my favorite movies that gets into this very artfully, it's not a, not a kid movie, just a little clarification up front, but the movie Magnolia, which shows the lives of these people from the San Fernando Valley just kind of unraveling and them sorting through um, the utter darkness of life. It's really well done. In fact, what's, what's, why I've got to bring this up today is because there's a point in the movie, if you've seen it, where frogs start falling out of the sky. And it kind of, that, that sense of, you know, you're going, this, is, this guy who's writing this had to have had some sense of a biblical knowledge of plagues and frogs um, because that starts to interweave those things. Frogs falling out of the sky starts to, you know, show that interconnectedness between nature and the brokenness of, of our world and it even starts to affect how their lives go as they're sorting through their mess. Well, it turns out the, the writer and director, P.T., um, what's his name, P.T. Anderson, you can see this quote in the worship guide. It turns out he, didn't even, he wasn't even aware of this biblical connection until someone pointed it out to him. So he's explaining why, why were there frogs falling out of the sky in this movie, and he says this, you get to a point in your life and everything's out of control, and suddenly a rain of frogs just makes sense. You're staring at a doctor who is telling you something is wrong, and while we know what it is, we have no way of fixing it. And you just, you just go, so you're telling me basically that it's raining frogs from the sky. When we catch some of these images in the story, we have to let our minds uh, sit with the power of some of the images. When in verse uh, 22 of chapter 10, or even right before that, at the end of, of verse 21, where it says, darkness that can be felt. And so Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. You have to enter into that image of darkness. That's a critical part of the drama of the Bible is the issue of darkness. What are, some, what are the first words of God in, in the Bible? Anybody know? Let there be light. And so this story, actually, if you let the images kind of you know, sit with you, you have to start asking questions like, what's my hope amidst darkness? 
I know, it's not a popular, it's not what you came to church today to start at. Thank you, Mark, for getting me to ask that question today while the sun is shining through the windows on this beautiful day in California. But really, that's, what, that's where this takes us. It's not my idea today, it's from here. What's your hope amidst darkness, the darkness of this world, the unraveling of things that happens around you and in our world? What's your hope? And what complicates things is that if you enter into the Bible's way of telling this story, we're not actually innocent parties in this unraveling. And that's hard to handle. There's an old joke that says um, we go around spending six days a week um, sowing our wild oats and we spend one day a week uh, asking for crop failure. little subtle joke there. Six days a week sowing wild oats, one day praying for crop, uh, crop failure. Um, I was terrified I was going to get that joke wrong. Um, I'm not good at jokes. But there's a sense of truth to that. As silly and old as that joke is, there's a sense of truth in that. You know, where's your hope? For Israel, they were not fooling themselves in this story that they were going to be their own light. You can read as you read on from where I just picked up. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Are you your own light? Notice the text isn't saying... Um, so what they ended up doing was they, um, or, or it doesn't end up stopping and saying, so what you need to do to create your own light, no, just the light is just given to these people. And the unpleasant truth about it is that if you're trying to be your own life, you, or your own light, you actually don't end up having enough. The best we can do, the best we can do is in the darkness kind of respond and try to claw our way out of it. That's the best on our own. And so these words come as a gracious surprise. If you're aware of, of the darkness and the unraveling, not only of your life and your heart, but of the world around you, these words of the Gospel of John, talking about Jesus, come as amazing truth for all of us. In him was life, and that light was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Again, just like with Israel, the, it doesn't start by saying, let me tell you as you begin to read the story about Jesus, how to create your own light, how to generate enough light on your path that you can be you know, satisfied and happy. Instead, the way it comes out in the Gospel of John is basically, this is what happened something that happened. The light came. It's news. It's a news event. Or as the Bible talks about it, it's good news. I remember um, when I was a kid, I had a bike lamp, and so I guess this was uh, early technology, because um, I have really nice bike lamps now. But this bike lamp was kind of heavy, and it probably had a big bulb in it, and it sat on the handlebars, and it had a cord going down to the tires. And... Um, and this thing was like a gear that worked with a tire. And so my foot pedal strength would make that turn. It would make the light go on. And except that I found that it wasn't a very fun light to have because it actually created friction. And it was harder to ride my bike. And what ended up happening is I, you, know, you get exhausted. And, and then the light just starts to go dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. And then you kind of ramp up and try to get and then it's And it just starts to dim as soon as you get any, like, um, any sense of momentum going with this light. And uh, that 
my friends, is a perfect picture of many of our spiritual lives. Just trying to create our own light. And you can do this. Uh, you can do this inside the church, or you can do it outside the church. You can do it running away from God. I don't want anything to do with him. He's the God of the Bible. He's the God of wrath. He's the God who brings down plagues on people. I got my own way, my own light over here. And you can run and run and run, and pedal and pedal and pedal to make your light. You can do the same thing in the church. In a sense, pedaling right there alongside of God to create your own light. I know you can even do it. You can start a church that way. I know because I did it. And in the middle of that, realizing you get exhausted doing that and the light just keeps going out and it's still dark. And really the only answer was the answer that seemed to be, it was, it was the, the invitation that kept coming to Pharaoh, right into to Pharaoh's backyard, literally. Every time one of these things would happen, it's that, it's that invitation to to stop pedaling and yield. Pharaoh was, I mean, he's a great person for us to grab hold of in this story because Pharaoh at every turn was basically saying, I am my own light. I mean, he didn't say that literally. Some of you like, can start looking. Where did he say that? No. But in a sense, at every plague, he was saying, get out my magicians. They can do the same thing. No way. I'm not going to do what this God says. I'm, I have, I'm making my own light here. And uh, eventually his magicians the ones who could do most of these tricks and copy the stuff God was doing. Eventually they came in and they said, Egypt is ruined. Yield already. Do what this guy is asking. Do what this God is asking. Even they could see on his own, with his own, making his own light, that path was the path of destruction. It was, it's not going to happen. It's darkness. Yield. Stop resisting. And so the Christian story involves... Something else, even another layer as you continue, is looking at the story of the cross and yielding, in a sense, to the story of the cross of Jesus. Because on the cross, instead of three days of darkness, we have when Jesus is on the cross, a very intentional link. When Jesus is on the cross, we're told, it went totally dark for three hours, covered the whole land surrounding Jesus. And what was happening, we learn, is that Jesus... Was, had come to earth actually to do exactly what was happening. That God had sent his son, his only son, his firstborn son, to absorb the darkness, to let the darkness come down as a plague on him so that it would never end up coming down on us. So as you think about, do I have hope in darkness? What is my hope? What the Christian story invites you to do is, is to just look at the cross, puzzle over the, the cross, reflect on the cross. What does it mean? What is, what is going on there? It is so strange if you really think about it. What is happening? The Son of God comes, he dies, he's beaten, he's flogged, he's spit on, he's on this cross, it goes dark, he dies. What's going on? Well, Pharaoh had, Pharaoh was, um, wouldn't yield and resisted God's grace and the darkness consumed him, and death consumed him. But with Jesus, God lets the darkness consume his firstborn. And when we ask the question, when we puzzle long enough to start to ask the question, why? Why did that happen? Then you begin to, you begin to hopefully stumble on the answer. It happens so that you...
and you, 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 everyone here, you could become the firstborn child of God's light. And in a sense, when you stumble on this and when you, I mean, you're pedaling and you're pedaling and you're trying to create your light and you're, you're, just, you're just going and going and going, sometimes you don't even realize how close you are to the light, yet you're still trying to create your own. To yield means to stop. Just stop pedaling. Stop striving. And it feels a bit like you're sitting at a table and the proud new adopted papa passes across the, the adoption papers that are signed and sealed. Their legality can never be questioned. And right there, you see they're written out for you. You've become this child to live in the light of God for all your life. And you look down and you see them. And you say, maybe, yeah, maybe. Let's pray. God of grace, uh, help us when we feel like the world is caving in around us and things are falling apart. We ask most of all that you help us because um, so often we find it almost impossible to help ourselves. We can be so lost in running, in pedaling, in chasing after something that we don't even know how lost we are. And certainly for some of us, we can look back and see how you woke us up or you stopped us or you helped us see how dark it was getting. Would you do that in some of our hearts? Would you help those who have that experience to share it with others in the context of small groups and friendships? Most of all, help us by your Holy Spirit because you don't need our religious efforts. We need your help and your light to shine into our dark lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.